Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast and welcome back for 2019. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. To kick off the new year today, we'll be discussing the politics of rice. Rice is Indonesia's most important staple food, with consumption estimated at more than 100 kilograms per person per year, in a country of 270 million people. Although rice consumption is in long-term decline, a common saying in Indonesia nevertheless holds, if you haven't eaten rice, you haven't eaten. How to provide such an immense quantity of rice to the population, whether through imports or domestic production, is a perennially thorny question in Indonesia, and one tightly bound with the country's domestic politics. For decades, successive Indonesian governments have set rice self-sufficiency as their goal, albeit a goal that has been devilishly difficult to achieve. To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Associate Professor Jamie Davidson from the Department of Political Science at the National University of Singapore, whose current research compares the politics of rice policy in Indonesia, the Philippines and Malaysia. Long-time listeners may remember Jamie from back in 2016 when we chatted about Indonesia's infrastructure challenges. It's well worth digging through the Talking Indonesia archive for a listen, if you haven't already. Jamie, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Dave, for having me. It's a pleasure. And a pleasure to have you on the podcast again. Thank you. Could I start today by asking, does the Jokowi government maintain this goal of rice self-sufficiency? And what are the origins of that goal in Indonesia? Well, to be honest with you, it's not entirely clear if they still maintain that goal. When you read statements that come out or policy statements that come out of the Jokowi's government, it certainly appears like that on paper. And it certainly makes for good publicity, good politics, a good image, I think, especially in the age of competitive elections in Indonesia. And certainly Indonesia employs a protectionist rice policy. The most graphic illustration of that is that the domestic price of rice is held up to be higher than the price of foreign imported rice. And Jokowi has promise to build, for example, large reservoirs to help increase the domestic production of rice in Indonesia. So whether or not it is truly a goal to obtain self-sufficiency is still not entirely clear. There's certain elements within Jokowi's government. You have to understand you can't actually think of the state, and particularly a policy as sensitive as this, as kind of singular or monolithic. So certainly the agricultural ministry sees that as a goal because its mandate is to produce as much domestic rice as possible. But there are certainly other countervailing forces or points of view in the government. For example, from a few technocrats in the finance ministry or the trade ministry that would prefer simply to save the public expenditure on producing more domestic rice, for example, building reservoirs or opening up new rice fields and simply importing cheaper rice from abroad, principally Vietnam and Thailand. Obviously, it's a contested area of policy at present. But has there been a time in Indonesian history where rice self-sufficiency was a clear and uncontested goal? The time in which it was probably the most uncontested goal was for a short period under the New Order regime, under Suharto's government. 
when Suharto took power in the late 60s, there was commitment to improving Indonesia's rice production. The international community gathered lots of its resources and spent a lot of money in Indonesia improving food security. And back then, food security was principally defined through domestic production of rice. It was believed that a lot of the radicalization and the instability under Sukarno's government was caused due to principally a lack of, of, of food security, so food insecurity. Suharto, it turns out, you know, he very famously achieved self-sufficiency in the mid-80s, particularly 1984, seems to be that year, that golden achievement. So from the mid-70s to the mid-80s, it was, I would say, an uncontested and uh, kind of a singular policy goal of the Indonesian government. But after achieving rice self-sufficiency in the mid-80s, Indonesian government quickly kind of pivoted away from rice self-sufficiency, particularly in domestic expenditures. Achieving that goal was very expensive, and the World Bank and others were very concerned uh, at the cost of the program. So they scaled back the cost, or the, particularly the subsidies of the program, on domestic fertilizers. And then Indonesia hadn't achieved rice self-sufficiency pretty much since then. Now, I mean, going back to that period from the mid-70s to the mid-80s, when Indonesia did work towards and indeed achieve rice self-sufficiency. You mentioned it was a difficult and expensive goal to achieve. What exactly was involved in becoming self-sufficient in rice? But there are a few components of this. Broadly speaking, it's known as the Green Revolution. What the Green Revolution actually is, it's a package of new technologies. Most famously are the miracle seeds, the seeds developed by the International Rice Institute based in the Philippines. But other countries, for example, Malaysia, they were growing also similar hybrid uh, seeds. And these are seeds that mature much more quickly. And so they allow you to have, for example, a second crop within a year, sometimes even triple cropping. So that was one element. The other element was the fact that these new modern seeds needed far greater water control in order to reach their potential. So that meant a, spending a lot of money uh, not just building new modern forms of irrigation, but improving or, or the ones that were already there and maintaining them. The way in which Indonesia under Suharto achieved rice self-sufficiency, though, was primarily through two means. One was increasing the yield. So that means increasing the amount of rice grown per hectare on Java. And that was principally done through an intensified use of fertilizers, of chemical fertilizers. The use of fertilizers on Java during this period more or less went up threefold. And that is expensive, that fertilizer. A lot of those farmers cannot afford it. So that the cost of fertilizers, which at this point, Indonesia was producing at great quantities, being an oil-producing nation at the time, Indonesia was very lucky in this regard. So the subsidies toward this was, was tremendous. The second component of this was wet rice field expansion, particularly in eastern Indonesia, from Sulawesi outward. Indonesia spent a lot of money at that time simply growing more rice across a wider area. And that changed the dynamics of lot of food, diet, and demographics, particularly in eastern Indonesia, where traditionally their diets relied on sago or cassava. And that 
now over time changed to wet rice. And that's a consequence of the Green Revolution. Was Sahato's motivation in pursuing rice self-sufficiency purely food security or was something else at play as well? Ultimately, it's very hard to know what the former general was thinking. On the one hand, the popular image is that he did this for the peasantry. He was seen as like this father of Indonesian peasants, particularly the Javanese peasant. So Harta was also convinced that, as I mentioned earlier, that the instability and the radicalization of the 1950s and 1960s at its core was a problem of insecurity in food production, especially on Java. So he went about trying to increase the food production. Now, in the early period of this, he really did not succeed very well. So rice importation actually under the the first third of the new order was actually quite high. And so in the early, let's say the mid 60s to the mid 70s for Suharto, I think a greater concern was the urban population. Now, this is written about widely in the literature on, on food security that, you know, it's particularly authoritarian rulers uh, whose legitimacy is not very clear. They concentrate on the urban population because that's the population it was theorized that can more easily bring down a regime. Plus, Suharto was trying to industrialize at this time. You needed more rice for workers who were no longer in the fields. They were in the factories, so they couldn't grow their own rice. So I think in the early stages, food security in the urban areas took prominence. But after a while, by the mid-70s, I think Suharto consolidated his power to a certain degree that he could kind of now switch his focus and his energies to the peasantry on on Java. And I mean, you've mentioned there that Even authoritarian governments need to develop domestic legitimacy, hence this focus often on urban populations. I mean, we we don't have a free press from the Sahado era. We can't look at the results of competitive elections. But do you have any sense of what public attitudes were to the Sahado regime's rice self-sufficiency policies? Was this a popular initiative at the time? Yeah, that's a great question. It's also one that's a little difficult for me to answer. I wasn't around in the mid-80s, so it's hard to get a sense of how popular this was. On the one hand, I think it was quite popular. I think there is this sense of Indonesia as a country that uh, is known for its strength in nationalism and nationalism sentiments. It's a country that likes to to show that it's a sovereign nation. It, It need not be reliant on the help of others, despite a lot of the evidence to the contrary. So I think Suharto's achievement of rice self-sufficiency was celebrated. But on the other hand, was it truly celebrated among the peasants themselves? On the one hand, you had growing prosperity and, and a rise in income in general in Java. So you have a rising of the floor uh, among the peasantry under Suharto. Whether or not some of those peasants, you know, there's also a lot been written about the coerciveness of the program, the fact that these peasants lost some autonomy in terms of when they could plant vis-a-vis traditional planting schedules or planting the new modern varieties of rice. A lot of them complained about the taste, the first few iterations of this so-called miracle rice. The taste wasn't the same. There were their stories about airplanes flying over these villages and dropping fertilizer from above. I'm not so sure the Green Revolution program was so popular among these peasants. But overall, I would have to say that there was support for it. And from a production point of view, despite the expense, it's hard to deny that the program was a success. 
And I mean, is that the terms that it's remembered in in contemporary Indonesia? Oh, absolutely. Like a lot of when it comes to the politics of memory, when you talk about historical memory, and it's not uh, so long ago, but it's historical enough, the mid 80s, people remember selectively. So they remember the achievement and the award that Suharta received in Rome in 1985 from the Food and Agricultural Organization. In fact, in Suharto's autobiography, he names this award as his what he feels as his greatest achievement. And that achievement to this day is still lauded and praised in Indonesia widely, and particularly among the proponents of rice self-sufficiency. You want to call them popular nationalists, but the, the expense of the program, the coerciveness of the program, the length of time that it took for Suharto to actually achieve this in an area where he could define policy, where the cabinet wasn't very fractious and his policies could be implemented on the ground, where apparently or supposedly regional government also towed the central government line. It still took an enormous amount of time for this to be achieved. All those kinds of difficulties, including the incredible levels or volumes of rice that was imported under Suharto. If you put this in a per capita sense, the rice that was imported under Suharto in the early 70s and the, the mid-70s is much, much greater than the volumes of rice being imported today at a per capita level. But every time rice is imported today in Indonesia, the press makes a big deal out of it, and all these uh, opponents are hollering and saying Indonesia developmentally has failed, we're, we're no longer an agrarian nation. So this politics of memory is very arbitrary and selective. Is it selective memory? Because, I mean, you have this interesting contrast where within Indonesia, in rhetoric at least, the goal of rice self-sufficiency has persisted from the 70s through to today, as, as you've just said, highly controversial to import rice. But those international agencies like the World Bank and its ilk who supported Indonesia's push for rice self-sufficiency back in the 70s and, and mid-80s have now well and truly moved on from that goal. And as far as I understand, particularly from your research, push for a liberalisation in the, in the trade of rice. Why do you have that contrast? Why, I guess, has the international community moved on from this goal, whereas in Indonesia it, it remains popular, at least in rhetoric? In the early 60s and 70s, there was this great pushed by the international community to help prop up governments such as Suharto's, pro-West, anti-communist. And there was also a sense that as the Indonesian government believed, food insecurity was at the root of the radicalism and the support for communism in Indonesia, particularly in Java in the 50s and 60s. So food security was defined through the domestic production of rice. They achieved it, but again, at a high cost. So once these governments are more rooted in place, more consolidated, the fear, for example, of a communist takeover, all that has subsided, and then the increasing kind of – it's just the changing objectives in development terms of the international community uh, shifted through the 80s, 90s into today from, for example, export-oriented industrialization and then uh, a much more kind of a neoliberal financial or the rise of, of, of financial services in, in a globalized economy today. That does not fit well or clashes with the imperative of growing rice, particularly when you compare to countries – that are rice surplus, for example, in, in Vietnam or Thailand, where it's just simply cheaper. So now 
when these international multilateral aid agencies, what they would prefer is Indonesia to spend more money on not growing rice. They want Indonesia to find certain niches in the international economy that it ha- enjoys a comparative advantage. Indonesia, for example, they claim spends too much money through ineffective poverty alleviation programs. A lot of these poverty alleviation programs have a lot of leakages, there's a lot of corruption, and the money ultimately doesn't make its way down to intended targets. If you bring in cheaper rice from Vietnam and from Thailand, the poor can simply lower their expenditures that they spend on food by having cheaper rice. Therefore, they have more money to spend, for example, on health uh, and education. So that's how the World Bank and the other organizations see the situation today. Do those sorts of recommendations from international agencies carry any weight in Indonesia? And you know, is their influence diminished by I guess, as you're describing, there at times have been heavy political considerations in the in the types of development advice that they've been providing to Indonesia. Well, they carry a great deal of weight, but they carry a great deal of weight in generating opposition to those policies. Your average Indonesian policymaker takes great umbrage when the World Bank makes these claims about how rice in Indonesia is too expensive and that expense is increasing poverty. They first, on the one hand, they claim that they don't understand the Indonesian rice economy very well. Indonesian policymakers, for example, talk about the high volatility in the international rice market. So it's not something that you can rely on. For example, the 2008 regional rice crisis, when there was a scarcity of rice on the international market, Indonesia may or may not have, depending upon whose statistics you believe, achieved a very short-term rife self-sufficiency at that time. The point is that they didn't have to rely on the international market and cause panics that happened, for example, in the Philippines. So Indonesian policymakers point, uh, uh, point to those kinds of achievements. There are, again, pockets of technocrats in certain departments that do see the, the logic or the rationale behind the liberalization. And so they're there. But politically speaking, it's the protectionists, it's the nationalists who clearly have the upper hand today. Now, moving on to democratic Indonesia, I mean, you've you've mentioned that under authoritarianism, the trade and production of rice was heavily regulated, what fertilizers people are are using, uh, I think what price rice could be sold at and the like. What exactly does the rice trade or rice production in Indonesia look like today? What sort of government agencies are involved and and how regulated is the sector? Yeah, in this way, there's been some continuity with New Water Indonesia into the democratic era, although there obviously has been, been some change as well. First of all, you still have Bulag at the kind of the top of the rice economy. Bulag is the uh, state logistics agency in Indonesia. Bulag was created to help regulate the trade of not just rice, but uh, other staple commodities as well. So Bulag has kind of this dual function, has the international side to it, where it pretty much is the main importer of rice through a monopoly license that it, uh, it holds. On the other hand, it also regulates trade domestically. For example, Bulag directly procures rice from Indonesian farmers, although it must be said that even under the height of the new order, the state 
involvement in this side of the economy was felt on the ground, but never dominated. So it wasn't a state-run economy per se. I think the highest number or highest figures that Bulag achieved was about 10% procurement rate. So the majority of the trade in Indonesia was still held in private hands. And there have been a lot written on how this actually led to a lot of the success of the rice economy and helped raise the prosperity of the rural economies, including the farmers under, under Suharto. Now, during the 1997-98 Asian financial crisis that ultimately led to Suharto's downfall, when the IMF and others came into Indonesia trying to liberalize Indonesia's economy to get rid of the so-called inefficiencies, the state monopolies, and the corruption, they tried to liberalize Indonesia's rice trade, and they basically took away Bulag's import license which led to a liberalization of the trade. And in that kind of very chaotic time, there were no other institutions, government agencies set up to help regulate the trade. All this rice flooded into Indonesia's markets. And in fact, the price did not go down significantly from what it was before, as market theory would predict. And so that period kind of has scarred a lot of Indonesian policymakers who no longer trust liberalization. Bulak has gone under lots of changes of late. So Bulak basically got back its rice monopoly. What has happened since then is that Indonesia has decentralized. And Bulak had this problem as a national agency under the central government. But it had a great logistics network. For example, its storages and its warehouses are based throughout the Indonesian archipelago. It, it has probably one of the farthest reaches, uh, maybe of all government agencies, except for maybe you can think about, for example, the military. When we talk about this liberalisation agenda, which seems you know very far from being implemented, but, but if it were to be, how, how big a change would we be talking? I mean, what percentage of rice in Indonesia is imported at the moment and what is domestically produced and how would those shift if you did liberalise the trade? No one can really answer that question until it actually is implemented. And that's one of the problems. So the market liberals maintain that the price of rice will go down, but none of them really would predict or publicly state by how much. Now, you would think that it would go down, but when rice was flooded in the Indonesian market in 97, 98, the price hardly went down. So there is a stickiness involved in this economy. You could maybe, you know, Indonesia is famous for its networks and its kind of collusive business, politicians, political parties, relationships. So there's no guarantee that importing higher quantities of rice is going to lead to the steep price discounts that market theory would predict. It should go down, but nobody's really willing to say by how much. Currently, on average, Indonesia imports between 1% and 4% of its rice needs. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think about the size of Indonesia, that's still a very large quantity that it brings in on an annual basis. And it's certainly large enough for markups to be involved, overpriced imports to be and then the profits or the rents from that, from these kinds of collusive networks are shared within Bulag and, and its close associates. So it is a lucrative business, 
the importation of rice. Now, that 1% to 4% on an absolute volume basis is large. But in a comparative perspective, that 1% to 4% is much smaller than some of Indonesia's neighbors where rice is grown in, 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 in large quantities. In the Philippines, on average, it imports roughly about 10% of its domestic requirements. And in Malaysia, it could be up to about a third. The problem is, is that when it's not really clear how much these countries really need in rice. If you have interests involved in the importation of rice, these interests, because of the great amount of money involved, we're talking millions and millions of dollars, will ensure that importation of rice continues. So, for example, there's great controversies in, in all three of these countries over how much the requirement actually is. Let me give you an example. In order to calculate that requirement, you need to know, on average, what is the daily rice consumption needs of a population. But none of these countries, that statistic is fully trusted by all sides. There's believed there's a lot of manipulation that goes on behind the scenes to get a figure, a target, in which to then say, okay, well, we're below that target, we need to import. A lot of the, pr the production or the nationalist side would say, Actually, when you think about it, Indonesia is already self-sufficient. Why are we importing? Then they'll plot out their own statistics that show Indonesia is rice self-sufficient. On the other hand, you have statistics coming out of other government departments saying, well, there's a shortage and we need a certain amount. So actually, whose statistics to trust is a huge question mark, and it plays into the political economy of all this rice. On the, on the import side, sometimes they would grant that, yes, okay, from a, a strict self-sufficiency viewpoint, Indonesia has met the target. But what about national emergencies? What about stockpiling? So this is like public reserves. If there's a downturn in production in the international market, we need a buffer stock. And so they'll use all these types of maneuvers and, and kind of tricks to ensure that the rice importation continues. I think that's a, a pretty clear picture of how some pretty powerful interests can benefit from a regulated situation where rice is being imported, albeit in small percentages. Are, are there similar powerful interests that could benefit if you move to a more liberalized position? You would think that the way in which the Indonesian economy works is that there would be adaptations, there would be adjustments in moving to a more liberalized system. Now, what actually is a liberalized system has different variants. You can simply import more rice, and you could do that through Bulak, and that would lead to some of the policy aims and goals, for example, of the World Bank by increasing the amount of foreign, cheaper rice in the market. A more ardent or stricter uh, interpretation of a liberal regime is to simply get rid of the monopoly position of Bulag and allow private traders to import rice and who will react to market signals. If more rice is needed, it will be brought in. If production is high, there'll be no point in bringing in the rice and so on and so forth. And, and that's their aim. 
when you study the political economy of anything in Indonesia, the market signals don't always work as theories predict. There's a lot of collusive behavior within large business conglomerates between them and central government figures or regional government figures. It's very hard to believe that somehow the importation of rice is simply going to dissolve these kinds of collusive networks and someone isn't going to form or, or just a new network to take advantage of the situation. I think it's a little naive to think that simply liberalizing the rice policy is going to solve all these developmental ills. Sure, sure. I mean, that, that, that makes a lot of intuitive sense that people that are able to profit from current circumstances would, would adapt to new circumstances as well. But I mean, is anyone with influence actually pushing for any of those liberalisation scenarios? And I mean, more broadly, is this even the right way to think about rice policy in Indonesia? Is it a matter of material calculations primarily in, in determining what course Indonesia takes on rice or, or other factors like ideology at play? Well, if you look at the past two presidential elections, there were obviously Jokowi Prabowo one and now Jokowi versus Prabowo two. That's going to happen this year in April. Despite the stark image differences between these two candidates, on this issue, right, this kind of populist economic nationalism, they actually agreed. In fact, I think that it was Prabowo who was more forthright in his policy pronouncements as a candidate about achieving rice self-sufficiency and that Jokowi saw the popularity of that and kind of latched onto that. And so at the top level of Indonesian politics today, I don't see anyone of influence pushing liberalization. Again, it's hard to say exactly where the source of this is coming from. Maybe there's a fear that this shift is too drastic and it will actually lead to rice shortages in Indonesia. And nobody wants to be a president overseeing a rice crisis. And even though the system they have today is imperfect, it works in the sense that Indonesia hasn't had a serious rice crisis in a very long time. Remember in the 2008 regional rice crisis, Indonesia did not suffer from sh shortages. So in the Indonesian politicians' eyes, it works. Broadly speaking, there seems to be wide societal support for this. And I, I just think today a candidate running for presidency who's going to vow to bring down rice prices through liberalization and the importation of cheap foreign rice, even though it may work – developmentally, and it's possible, although it, it's certainly no guarantee, that move is political suicide. It is fascinating. You've mentioned to promote liberalization as an electoral candidate would be political suicide. Like the rest of the world, Indonesia is an urbanizing country, rapidly urbanizing. You point out in your research that large tracts of agricultural land are being converted to other purposes. Why do you think rice retains this strong political salience, even as Indonesia continues to urbanize? Well, look, Indonesia is not unique in this regard, right? For example, you put in comparative perspective, look at Japan. Japan is way ahead of Indonesia on the developmental curve. Indonesia would love to be simply at half 
of the developmental achievement that Japan has reached. But rice there too retains a certain aura. It's, it's certainly a politicized commodity there. There's been a lot written about the Liberal Democratic Party building this huge edifice in cahoots with the Ministry of Agriculture and the reams of farmer teams and farmer organizations as a vote mobilizer. And the channeling of subsidies through this network helps the LDP, at least help them stay in power for pretty much the whole post-World War II period, with a few exceptions. So rice as a political commodity is not unique to Indonesia. Sure, sure. Now, Jamie, there's still a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights with us today. It's been great. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Associate Professor Jamie Davidson from the Department of Political Science at the National University of Singapore. Talking Indonesia returns on Thursday, 31 January with my co-host, Dr. Gemma Purdy. Until then, you can trawl through our extensive archive of episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it also if you'd rate the podcast wherever you listen to it or get in touch with any feedback. That's all from me for today. This has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.